Welcome to Voices of Resilience, a special series from the Vital Voices podcast, where we're sharing stories of courage, commitment, innovation, and perseverance from women leaders in unprecedented crisis. I'm your host, Elise Nelson. Today, I'm so excited to be speaking with Anna Fearman. She's a disability rights advocate, currently working for Mobility for All. Anna has been a passionate advocate back to even her middle school years. And today we're honored to speak with her about the work that she does, intersectional issues that arise for so many with disabilities around the world. Um, so Anna, welcome. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, I'm, I'm happy to be here. So I'd love to start off um, just discussing how you got into this work. Tell us a little bit about maybe your own story um, and how you became passionate um, and, and how you became an advocate for these issues. Sure. Um, I'd say my passion for disability advocacy draws from a pretty broad collection of experiences of both my own and of others. Interestingly enough, my awareness of disability didn't start with my own realization that I am disabled. That came a lot later, but the, the catalyst for my advocacy probably was my great aunt Janet, who I absolutely adored as a child and who was intellectually disabled. Uh, during the time that I knew her, she, she lived independently and was quite active in her community. And I remember, I think it was probably sometime in elementary school, having a conversation with my mom about my aunt's living situation, where I remember my mom telling me that my aunt Janet was very lucky to live where she did because she used to live in a place where she didn't get to choose what she did um, and had pretty strict rules. Mm -hmm. And I now know that that what my mom was referring to was the fact that she was institutionalized for a while. But mm -hmm. at the time I didn't know or understand that. And I very vividly remember having a hard time wrapping my head around the idea that an adult could have that many restrictions placed on their lives. Um, mm -hmm. And that really stuck with me, but more in terms of my, I guess my peer advocacy work, um, I'd say I was introduced to it in middle school and then in college when I um, had the opportunity to intern with a really incredible disability rights organization called the National Council on Independent Living. Um, and while I was there, I was introduced to a really rich community of wonderful and passionate disability rights advocates. Um, and it was about probably about at that point that I began to realize that I myself am disabled and that it was an integral part of my identity that I could even have pride in. Um, mm. And so it's just been a journey since then. Mm. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge believer in those things that maybe we grow up with thinking of our disabilities being actually like our, 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 our strongest assets, right? They're, they're where we de derive strength and, and power, quite frankly. Um, so I think, I think the work that you're doing is, is so deeply important. And it is something that, um, that certainly is, is impacted by COVID-19. It's closing so many um, personal interactions. It's requiring face masks, which is reducing interpersonal connection. Um, and, you know, I think about 
people who are deaf. I mean, how can you read lips if someone has a face mask on? Um, certainly, I think, you know, one of the things that, that I think is also quite challenging is, is limitations within hospitals, you know, if, 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 um, or, or institutions, right? And yeah. So can you talk a little bit about your work and how it's been impacted? Yeah, um, there's no doubt, like you said, that the pandemic has pretty heavily impacted the disability community. Um, if I tried to cover all of the ways that it has, we would probably be here for days. <laughs> um, so I'll just talk about a few, I guess. Um, I mean, first, we kind of referenced this, but many of the people who are considered high risk in COVID are people with disabilities. Um, and then you also mentioned mask wearing, which I think is, um, it's, it's a big thing to protect ourselves and others, but for some disabled people, um, it's hard to wear a mask or they are not able to wear a mask. Um, like you said, um, people who are deaf, there's a lot of, um, masks create some barriers that way in the fact that Facial expressions and things like that are very important to sign language and um, some deaf folks use reading lips as a part of their communication um, and that's obviously not not possible with face masks. Um, and then also there are sensory um, sensory sensitivities for a lot of autistic folks um, where wearing mm -hmm. the mask just isn't isn't an option there. Um, mm -hmm. I'd also say one way that COVID has impacted the disability community is um, there were pretty large issues with medical bias and um, access to medical services prior to COVID, but those issues have just been exacerbated once the pandemic was entered into that equation. Um, mm. In terms of like, there are a lot of conversations going around about medical rationing in hospitals. so ventilators um, and that sort of thing and hospitals coming up with plans of if they are need to if they don't have enough ventilators who gets ventilators mm. or things like that um, or other personal protective equipment um, or issues with access to technology for remote visits or the ability to have someone whether that be a family member or caregiver or someone to help with communication to mm -hmm. be able to attend those hospital visits with you or things like that um, have been a challenge for a lot of people. In addition to um, some people with disabilities use personal care attendants um, mm -hmm. and that is a big risk to play um, just in terms of having someone else come into your home um, and needing to rely on the fact that they are being safe and protecting themselves so that they don't bring COVID into your home. Um, and it's a pretty, I won't get into all of the details of it, it's a pretty complicated issue um, with PCAs because in the first place PCAs are typically pretty underpaid um, and there are so there's that aspect of things and there are also there's also the aspect of having someone come into your home and relying on them them and what their services to live independently um, and that really impacts 
people with disabilities in the COVID era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so many really complex issues that get at so many other issues. Um, wow. I can, so tell me a bit about how your work has changed in this environment. Yeah. Um, so I kind of address disability um, activism and things both from my personal life and personal interests, but also from my work with Mobility for All. Um, so I guess I should probably explain quickly who Mobility for All is and what we do. That would be great. <laughs> um, so we're a startup company that's just about two years old, um, and our mission is to empower seniors and people with disabilities to live independently. Um, and the way that we go about that is through our personalized ride service that we aim to provide safer and kinder and more specialized ride services for those people. Um, a coworker of mine, how they characterize it, which I think is a great way to characterize what we do is that transportation is our function, but care is our mission. Um, so a big part of what we do is provide drivers who are trained to work with seniors and just people with disabilities and any unique needs or accommodations they, they have. Um, so due to the demographics of our ridership, we prior to COVID were already spending a lot of time working to ensure the health and safety of our riders. Um, but with that being said, obviously we couldn't predict the COVID-19 pandemic or nor could we anticipate the, the sheer magnitude um, so we had to do, we've definitely had to do a lot of thinking on our feet and um, adjusting our services accordingly um, to address the emerging needs of both our riders and the broader Twin Cities community where we're based. Um, so with that, um, some of the things that Mobility for All that we've been doing there is coordinating with local grocery stores to develop grocery delivery programs for our riders. And there was a need for those programs to specifically take into account that a portion of our riders aren't computer literate or don't have access to some of that technology and, and are therefore excluded from your typical grocery delivery services like Instacart or things like that. Um, so we've been working on meeting those needs in addition to prescription delivery needs. Um, luckily, we had a grant that has allowed us to provide these deliveries for free or low cost, which has been, um, which has helped us to reach the most number of people that, we're, that we can. Um, and we're hoping to find some more long-term grant funding so that we can make it a long-term program since the risk mm. of COVID-19, especially for at-risk populations, mm. isn't going to be going away soon. Um, yeah. Or another pandemic. I think yes. it, it brings up that this is possible in our world. It's possible that a, you know, a, a, a virus starts in one country and quickly travels around the globe in a matter of months. And how do we be better prepared for that? I mean, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. It's it's almost sort of shocking how ill-prepared we are yeah. for it, how it brings, you know, the world and the global economy to its knees. And exactly. anything that impacts, you know, um, the general population, one way we know the 
the impacts um, on, on those with disabilities, those with mobility issues, those with um, you know, underlying uh, illnesses um, or more risk is, is you know, doubly so, if not triply so. Yeah. Um, can you talk at all about some of the longer term impacts that you think the pandemic will have on, on disability rights and considerations? Yeah. Um, one of which I would say, as we've all probably seen on the news, um, congregate living facilities have been devastated by COVID-19. And I think that this has opened up a lot more conversations on access to, well, f first of all, on how to prepare these congregate living facilities for, like you had mentioned, situations like it, like this in the future. Um, but additionally has opened up some more conversations on access to home and community-based services. Um, so there's a pretty long and storied history of disabled folks being forced to move into institutions because either the government wouldn't offer the option for them to use um, various medical access funding to pay for these home and community-based services. So therefore, people were forced to, if they wanted those services that would help them continue to live their lives and, and continue their quality of life, they would have to give up some of the freedoms that are given up by moving into an institution. Um, and in some, in some cases, those services weren't available at all. Uh, the Olmstead decision, which was a 1999 Supreme Court case, first touched on that um, and on the fact that people with disabilities and seniors have the, should have the right to determine where they live if they want to live in a mm. congregate living facility or if they want to live at home. And although that touched on that issue and that established that right, that is still a big issue for many in the disability community and many seniors of having access to those services that they need. Um, so I'm hoping, I guess one of my personal hopes is that those conversations will open up because of the fact that congregate living facilities have been a big, um, I don't know if the word is, the correct word is breeding ground for COVID yeah. or um, a big place where it's been spreading. Um, and I think that, that that reveals a lot of issues that need to be addressed, um, both within those communities and outside, mm. if that makes sense. Um, it absolutely does. And it's something that we certainly face. My, my mother-in-law is in an assisted living facility here just outside Washington, D.C., we live in Washington, D.C. My husband, immediately once they had one case, he took her out of the facility. They actually quarantined separately from the rest of the family mm -hmm. um, for two weeks to make sure that everything was okay. Um, you know, just stayed at a, you know Airbnb for two weeks. And then, you know, when they knew they were okay, came back and are at home. And then we also have young kids and we had a we had an au pair who's taking care of our kids and, you know, who, who wanted to live a very different lifestyle than we were willing to live with both my parents who actually kind of got stuck here <laughs> and now my, my, uh, my, uh, my husband's mother who is 91 and, you know, and, and, and really needs to be in that facility. And it's, 
And you realize it's such a huge issue of trust and the stakes are so high. Um, yes, so exactly. I, I, I have a, I have a sort of small taste of, of, of that. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it really is difficult and it makes you question a number of things. And, you know, at what stage do you feel comfortable going back, having people, um, you know, into your home? Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult calculus. Um, and, and I can only imagine so much, so much more difficult if, if you simply have no choice and we are, we, we are yes. lucky to be able to somehow peace and manage, manage caring for everybody <laughs> together. Um, yeah, exactly. That's a big, um, a big topic of conversation, I would say within the disability community, um, mm. especially since so many in the community are at high risk with COVID. Mm. And I know that you're based in um, Minnesota and obviously um, they're, they're, you know, following obviously George Floyd's mor- murder. You know, there have been protests across every state, um, you know, in this country as well as around the world. But I would imagine also, you know, you think about taking to the streets and obviously right now it's, you know, there are risks to taking to the streets and protesting. Um, but, but in terms of, you know, marching and gathering, how do you, um, you know, I'd love to shed light on, on, uh, for you, um, you know, how do you make sure the protests and public demonstrations, um, cater to those who, who are disabled? Yeah. So I actually live in Minneapolis pretty close to where George Floyd was murdered. So I've, um, been able to witness a lot of, the related protests firsthand, which has been, as always, a big learning experience for me. Um, One of the biggest things that I think organizers of um, protests or demonstrations, things like that, could do to help disabled folks be able to participate is through proactively considering the needs of the disability community instead of waiting for someone to point out that an aspect of your event is inaccessible or that sort of thing. So that would mean accounting for sign language interpreters and captioning services and advertising what access and accommodations will be available. Um, So there's a lot of consciously considering the needs of disabled folks and or including people with disabilities in the planning process and I think that that Mm. could be a big um, a big way that would aid disabled folks in joining these conversations Um, in addition to options for virtual participation um, and refusing to hold activism events in inaccessible spaces um, because it can there are a lot of um, inaccessible spaces that um, just really prohibit that interaction um, and that advocacy from being mm. truly intersectional. Mm. You know, and as we continue to think um, about how we improve allyship more broadly, um, in what ways can people be allies for disabled people? Um, in their homes or in their organizations, their communities, and their businesses? Yeah, um, I would say a big thing would be following the work of disability-led organizations um, and 
learning from them and talking to disabled voices, um, particularly um, people with dis Black people with disabilities, Native people with disabilities, um, and making sure to consider the needs of those folks in, um, in our actions and things like that. Um, I would also say that having conversations in our nation, specifically when I think of police brutality and um, George Floyd's murder, um, around, I believe the statistic is that around half of people who experience police violence are disabled. Um, and this is an especially nice. big issue for people wow. who are black and disabled. Um, people with, black people with mental illness or deafness, uh, autism, and considering those folks when we are working to transform policing, um, policing mm. policies and the police force and things like that. And we are calling for change, considering those voices and considering how we can account for the needs of those, those folks would go a long ways to um, furthering justice across the board. Mm. So for those listening who are really compelled by, by, um, by what you're saying and want to look for ways to support or do more or learn more, is there a website they can go to? Yeah, um, they can visit mobilityforall.com with the number four, um, or actually even better, check us out on Facebook or Twitter. Um, that's a lot more of the, the current daily updates. Um, on another note, um, I would say one big way for people to learn and, um, and can I become educated would be to follow disabled folks and disabled people of color and, um, on social media accounts, because that is where I've noticed a lot of the conversations are happening. Um, and I, try to amplify those amplify those voices as much as I can on my personal Twitter account, which is just a fearman. Um, but I think that it's important that people also do the work to um, to do the work to seek out those voices across the spectrum of disability and um, people who have identities that intersect with them being disabled because obviously, I am not the only one person to represent all perspectives and I cannot understand the experiences of all disabled people or um, disabled people of color. So I'd just say first seeking out disabled voices, but also seeking out diverse disabled voices um, and getting more than one perspective on things is very important. Mm. Anna, thank you so much um, for your insights and, uh, and for all you do. Um, we really appreciate you joining us today to shed light on this. Yeah, thank you for allowing me to be a part of the conversation. Thanks for listening to the special edition of the Vital Voices podcast. We hope that you're doing all you can to keep yourselves, your families, your teams, and your communities safe and healthy. If you'd like to support our work with women leaders in this country and around the world, you can donate to Vital Voices on our website at vitalvoices.org, O-R-G. 
or you can text VITAL, V-I-T-A-L, to 41444. That's VITAL to 41444. Stay safe and remember that we will get through this unsettling time together.